The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Great, Father. Good to see you. Yes, as always. Too. Yep, great to be here. Father, I know you wanted to ask for some prayers before we begin tonight. Yes, I do ask for prayers as, as ordinary. ordinarily. Uh, I do ask for prayers for those who are very ill. Or have just passed away, and tonight I ask for uh, prayers for Marion Huntington, a dear parishioner of ours at St. Teresa of the Child Jesus in Parma, Ohio. Uh, Mrs. Huntington died after a lengthy illness. Uh, just so I ask you to please pray for her and her family, very large family. And um, also pray for Steve Breslin. Steve just underwent open heart surgery in New York, and uh, the surgery went well, we understand, but there's a long hard recovery ahead, so please keep him in your prayers, and uh, please continue your prayers for Joseph Percher, for Jerry Murphy, uh, for Fred Skirke, Father Martin Skirke's father, uh, brother, and Father Paul Skirke's father, actually. So uh, please keep Fred in your prayers. And uh, there, there are many others, too. Um, I could actually spend the whole show <laughs> giving a list of of those who need your prayers, ask them would gratefully receive them and, and reward them by praying for you and offering up their sufferings for you. But God knows who they are, so if you pray for all of those intentions that have been committed into the hands and hearts of your priests, you'll be doing a lot of good. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for that, Father. Um, we had several topics uh, we wanted to mention tonight, Father, but I guess um, prominently there was a very interesting uh, article on uh, on LifeSite News, right, a link to a uh, to a video video interview with um, I guess their their founder and president John Henry Weston, and he had uh, two different guests on um, during this interview. One Liz Yor, believe a prominent Catholic attorney, and he also had Father James Altman, who I'm sure many of our, our viewers are familiar with. Uh, they they uh, were, were discussing Father this um, synod on a synodality um, that's that's currently taking taking place in the Novus Ordo Church, and we we want to get into that a bit tonight. But um, I just wanted to begin by by highlighting some of the comments that uh, this this Father James Altman, Novus Ordo priest, uh, made during this interview with John Henry Weston of LifeSite News, where um, rather striking, I think he. Uh, he said that um, Francis, I don't even think that he called him Pope Francis, I maybe even referred to him as Jorge Bergoglio, uh, he said that he is he is the precursor to the Antichrist, um, absolutely, unequivocally, no, no doubt about it, he is the precursor to the Antichrist. And uh, he said, accursed be Francis and his, his bishops, um, he said, may they, may they, something to the effect, not a direct quote, but may they uh, be accursed to the deepest, hottest fires of hell, um, because they are apostates and what they're doing is leading souls to hell. And so he said it's actually an act of charity um, to, to say this, um, to say this thing. So 
Um, rather striking statements, Father. I don't even know if um, if you have said anything close to that on on this show. Um, and this is from a man who is uh, supposed to be a Novus Ordo priest under under Francis. I presumably still recognizes him as as his pope. Um, what did you make of these comments, Father, of, of James? Well, actually, uh, Tom, I did I did see that video. At least uh, some of it. I didn't watch the whole thing. Uh, I, I would have if I had had the time, but. Unfortunately, my time is kind of chopped up in blocks, so I get interrupted uh, by things coming in. But it was very interesting and, and rather startling. Uh, I did not see, uh, I didn't hear the part where Father Altman called Jorge Bragoglio, uh, a.k.a. Francis, um, the, certainly the precursor of the Antichrist. There is a, a, a little uh, dragon or a little, little prophet, the prophet of the Antichrist, who does... Uh, call the world to worship him, right? Yeah, that we find that in the book of the Apocalypse, called by some the book of Revelation. And uh, I understand that Father Ultimate is calling Francis that that little... Um, little beast. Little beast. The little beast who's calling the world to worship the, uh, the Antichrist, right? And um, there is good evidence that he is correct. There's plenty of evidence to indicate that he may well be right. Okay. Have I come out and said so? No, I've just said what I just said, that there's good evidence to indicate that he might, that he might be right in that. But, uh, and uh, you ask, have I said anything like that on this show? Uh, certainly not on the show, uh, nor anywhere else for that matter. Not in the pulpit or anywhere else. I've, I've certainly never said a curse would be Francis and his, you know, his, his leftist bishop, bishops or whatever, the modernist bishops in the deepest fires of hell. As Father Altman said, I was actually quite shocked to find that on LifeSite News. I was shocked to find it not only um, in the interview that Father Altman had with uh, John Henry Weston. I was pretty. I was more than shocked to find that that was the lead-in. That's how it began, yeah. right? It's the lead-in to the program. And so that was the highlighted um, a shocker. I, I really. I, I imagine most of those who saw that were truly startled by it. Man, um, I guess in that case, shock probably would not have been too strong. Because LifeSite News has always uh, referred to Francis unequivocally as Pope Francis. and uh, <clears throat> But here they are awakening to a situation that is um, uh, actually so devastating for the church and for souls, and so uh, insulting to, and sinful so insulting to our Lord, so blasphemous, so sacrilegious. Uh, they're, they're awakening to this and recognizing more and more the gravity of it. The entire new order, now presided over by Francis. That I think they're beginning to uh, not mince words anymore, not tiptoe around the question. Uh, who is Francis? Who or what is Francis? Um, and that's a very serious question. I was very happy that uh, Liz Yor also well, I think it's very well spoken. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think very moderate. She's an attorney, so I think she has a certain moderation in what she says. Um, I, she is very much awakened. and I, You know, they talk about being woke now. <laughs> well, um, the term is obviously um, a contrived term. It's not even good English. Um, with the leftists, they, they have an aversion or even an allergy to uh, good English, so they have to distort it and twist it. I doubt that they can, they can even speak it 
if they if they wanted to good English, but um, I would say in this regard um, there are some Catholics who are truly awakening to the uh, gravity of the situation with Francis and his synodal church his synodal way and I think I think Liz your really does understand the gravity of the situation. You know, it was actually way back at the beginning of Jorge Bregoglio's uh, tenure in the Novus Ordo as the Pope of the Novus Ordo, uh, all the way back in October 17th in the year 2015, that Francis announced uh, the celebration uh, of the 50th anniversary of the institution of the Synod of Bishops by Paul VI. And Francis, at the ceremony commemorating that 50th anniversary, as they say, October 17th, 2015, made a statement. This is his address. And he unveiled his plans to build a synodal church. Now, that should have been a warning. I don't know anybody who, who actually reacted to that. Certainly not as I did, because when I read this, I thought, here it comes. Here it comes. Here are his plans. This is what he's going to do to the church. This is his new vision of the new church. And I don't know of anybody who actually picked up on the fact, uh, there certainly were people more scholarly than I, who picked up on the fact that Francis was using this document to announce his plan, how he was going to completely deform the church. <clears throat> but, you know, you read that document by Francis, this address that he gave on that commitment, ceremony commemorating the 50th anniversary of the institution of the Synod of Bishops by Paul VI. And you read the message straight out of the condemnation of modernism by St. Pius V, by, by St. Pius X, I beg your pardon. Uh, September 8th, 1907, St. Pius X issued an encyclical. He promulgated an encyclical called Pascendi Dominici Gregis, with which our viewers are very familiar. And in English, it was entitled A Condemnation of the Errors of the Modernists. Not just modernism, but of the modernists, okay? And uh, in that encyclical, St. Pius X said, modernism was the greatest danger the Church had ever faced, because the modernists were inside the church, were in the very veins of the church, in her bloodstream, and because their goal was to destroy the very meaning of faith, what faith is. And he went on to explain that. There's a lot of philosophy, there's philosophical background needed to really understand the encyclical. Um, uh, so, you know, someone could pick up the encyclical on, on the condemnation of the heirs of the modernists, someone could pick up Pashendi and start reading, and have a hard time following it. They might even think they do follow it, but they, but they might not, <clears throat> because they don't necessarily understand the terminology, and they don't understand how it, it all works together philosophically and theologically. <clears throat> so they might have the idea, well, I understand his point, but they, they, they might not get the point. Nonetheless, uh, Pius X, St. Pius X said that modernism, taken in its totality, uh, is actually the synthesis of all heresies. Well, you take the synthesis of all heresies, that would be the very definition of the word apostasy, the denial of all faith. And so uh, St. Pius X did not 
mention apostasy and Bashendi, but he did speak about apostasy, apostasy uh, later on in other, in other documents. And apostasy actually threatening the church, threatening members of the church, including members of the hierarchy. Now, um, in, order to, in order to understand the gravity of what Francis said in this address, I'd like to read some of what he said. Rather than just comment on it, I think it's very important to read these things. And I would ask people to, to listen carefully, because after reading what Francis says, I want to go to the, the encyclical Bashendi, and I want people to notice, are there things that St. Pius X condemns in Bashendi as being like quintessential modernism, the, the modernist concept of what the Church is? Is there a correspondence between what St. Pius X condemned and what Jorge Pergolio is now saying is his very intention of what he intends to do to the Church, his mission to do to the Church? Here's what he says, from the beginning of my ministry as Bishop of Rome, I sought to enhance the Synod, which is one of the most precious legacies of the Second Vatican Council. He says, Paul VI, whom we call Blessed Paul VI, the Synod of Bishops was meant to reproduce the image of the Ecumenical Council and reflect its spirit and method. So there's a warning right there that the Synod was meant to reproduce the image of the Second Vatican Council and to reflect its spirit and its methods. So it was meant to be launched by the Second Vatican Council in its own image and likeness. He says this was Paul VI's idea. He said John Paul II, whom he calls St. John Paul II, echoed the thought, and he said Benedict XVI approved the changes to the Synod, approved them, and approved the whole concept. So he's saying that all the way through, from Paul VI on, this has been the plan, okay, of all of those he named here. <clears throat> so he says, we must continue along this path. It is precisely this path of synodality which God expects the church of the third millennium. So he dedicates the church of this third millennium, this, this next thousand years, okay, like the thousand-year Reich, to the synodal church, this is what God demands the church become right now, okay? My point being, and I think you'll follow, that what he's describing here is creating a church which didn't exist before. He's actually recreating the church in, his, in a certain way, <clears throat> which is not the church of the second millennium or the first millennium, the, the actual beginning of the church with our Lord. It's something different. Here's what he says, what the Lord is asking of us is already in some sense present in the very word synod, journeying together. Laity, pastors, the Bishop of Rome. Laity, pastors, the Bishop of Rome. This is a theme. These three <coughs> have to somehow work together. And, how, and he shows how they are to work together, which is, again, the essence of modernism. It's an easy concept, he says, but it's hard to put into, into, into and practice. And his, his message is not only to give the concept, his message now is going to enable the church to become this synodal church, following the synodal path, putting it into practice. That's his mission. By the way, he does say that uh, the very word synod 
the, the, it conveys the idea of a journeying together. Because soon in, in Greek means with or together, and hodos, hodos means the way. So literally ascended means way together. So he's actually choosing this word very carefully. Because he wants it to express where he's going and give it the, the air of being some, somehow uh, a, a legacy of tradition, even though he says it's the legacy of Vatican II. He said, after stating that the people of God is comprised of all the baptized who are called to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, the Second Vatican Council went on to say that the whole body of the faithful who have an anointing which comes from the Holy One cannot err in matters of belief. The whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural sense of the faith, the sensus fide, of the whole people of God, when from the bishops to the last of the faithful it manifests a universal consensus in matters of faith and morals. <clears throat> These are the famous words, infallibile, incredendo. Now, <clears throat> uh, it's interesting to see the sleight of hand. The modernists are like magicians. They show this shell game. It's hard to follow where they're going with these concepts. This is a prime example of it. Notice he says, this is the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council talking to us. He says, all the people are anointed by God. As though somehow they all take part in magisterium. He says they have a, a, an inerrancy in matters of belief. The whole body of the faithful. Now, the church has always taught that there is a census fide among the faithful. That's true. And you can't have the entire body of the faithful losing the faith at any point. It couldn't happen. Can a large segment of the, of the uh, people in the church leave the church? Can they become heretics and leave the church? Well, of course, we've seen that happen multiple times in the church's history. It happened during the, the so-called Reformation, right, and, and Luther and so on. It happened also in Bohemia under John Hus and Wycliffe in England and so on. And uh, we see this happen, and with the Orthodox breaking away too. So it's one thing to say that the people, the Catholic people, who are faithful, hold the true faith. That's true. But what they're saying here is essentially changing, they're change, he's changing the terms. He's changing the terms, saying it's a characteristic of the Catholic faithful, that what they believe must be the true faith. So if you take a, consen a census of the Catholic people, find out what they believe, then that's going to necessarily be the true faith. And he's turning it around saying, so our synod has to start with canvassing the Catholic people to find out what they believe. And that's going to tell us to start with where the, what the true faith is right now. You see what I mean? Yeah. He's pulling a switcheroo here, okay? Um, so what he's basically saying is the universal Catholic people uh, have the true faith, and whatever that may be, that's what we have to discern. We have to find out what that is, and we then have to canonize that somehow. Uh, not that, uh, you, know, you know, there are many people in the church who might not believe the true faith or might break away. No, no, we include them. We include all of them together in discerning what is the belief of the people at the moment. See, Imagine if they did that during the time of the Reformation under Luther. Well, essentially, they have rehabilitated Luther. And Francis has already said, we agree with Luther in the matter of... Um, of of justification. Okay, so essentially he's already been putting this into practice. 
retroactively and going back to the Reformation even, canvassing Luther and his followers and saying, well, there you had the census fidelium there, and uh, there you had, you know, a true, true faith, as Luther had back then, in the matter of the, uh, the justification of the soul. In any case, so notice the word, a universal consensus. That's what he says. We have to start with, in the synodal way, a universal consensus. And this <clears throat> draws together, beginning with the faithful, then, the bishops <clears throat> and, and the bishop of Rome, especially, okay? So he says, such was the conviction underlying my desire that the people of God should be consulted. He said, in particular, in preparation for the Synod on the Family, we had to consult the people of God to find out what do they believe. What is behind all of this is the modernist idea that faith is an experience. The people are the ones who have the experience of faith living in the world. So to know what the faith is at the moment, you have to go to the people and ask them, what is the faith that you are living in the world today? That's where it all starts, the process of determining what is the faith? And he goes on to say, a synodal church is a church which listens. It is a mutual listening in which everyone has something to learn. The faithful people, the college of bishops, the bishop of Rome, all listening to each other and all listening to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. So we have all three of these groups. <clears throat> he repeats that, these, these three three parts, right, as it were, of what comes down to magisterium, right, <clears throat> all listening to the Holy Spirit, but they're listening to each other also. It's almost as though you have uh, like a trinity on earth of the people, the pastors, and the Bishop of Rome. Like they're, 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 the, they're the trinity here on earth, listening to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he calls them here, who is going to guide them all. And notice, by the way, that the Bishop of Rome is to listen to the Holy Spirit. The bishops as a whole listen to the Holy Spirit. The faithful as a whole listen to the Holy Spirit. There's really no difference in their, in their relationship here, right? They're all basically infallible. All of them. So he says the synod process, he calls it a process, of course, Everything is a process in the Novus Ordo. Begins by listening to the people of God. That's where it all starts. So the synodal process begins by listening to the people, which shares also in Christ's prophetic office. You hear what he's saying? The people of God share in Christ's prophetic office as a, as a people, right? All the believers, right? They've all received... Christ's prophetic office. The synod process then continues by listening to the pastors. <clears throat> and the next step, through the synod fathers, the bishops act as authentic guardians, interpreters, and witnesses of the faith of the people, of the whole church. That's what the bishops are. That's what the synod fathers are. The Synod of Bishops that was established in Paul VI, in which Francis now wants to, it has in progress right now for these two years, going up to October of 2023 with these, this great Synod of Bishops now, which is in this process of discerning from the people what is the faith, okay? 
He says, the, these bishops are to be guardians, interpreters, and witnesses. Interpreters of the faith of the people. They are meant to witness to the faith of the people. And they are meant to then convey that to Francis. They're like the pass-through, as it were, like a filter. The people express their faith, their experience of God, their experience of Christ, uh, their experience of the Holy Spirit in the world today. They then <clears throat> communicate that to the pastors, the bishops, and the bishops as guardians, witnesses, and interpreters are then to convey that to Francis. The faith of the whole church comes through them, which they need to discern carefully from the changing currents of public opinion. So they have a kind of a distillation process, you know, of what the people tell them. And then he goes on to say the synod process culminates in listening to the bishop uh, of actually the bishop of Rome. Okay. So the bishops then convey this to the bishop of Rome, and then the bishop of Rome speaks. And what is he speaking? He's speaking as pastor and teacher of all Christians, not on the basis of his personal convictions, but as a supreme, again, witness. He's only a witness to the fides tortius ecclesiae, the faith of the whole church. He's a witness of the faith of the whole church that has actually been conveyed to him by the bishops. The guarantor of obedience. Now remember, try to remember all this, okay? When we get to Pescendi, you're going to see St. Pius X knew exactly what he was dealing with in modernism. He knew exactly where they were going. It's as though Francis took the, 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 the encyclical of Pope Pius X condemning the errors of the modernists and said, this is exactly what I'm going to do. This is my playbook here. See if it isn't so. So the synod process ultimately leads to Francis now pronouncing on what he's learned from the bishops and what they've learned from the people. And now Francis is going to, as it were, use his authority to impose that on the whole church because he's ultimately the witness of the belief of the people coming to him through the bishops. That's why he calls himself here the guarantor of obedience, that everybody will conform to the will of God, the will of the church, the gospel of Christ, and he says to the tradition of the church. But he, again, his concept of tradition is very interesting. It's very modernist. It's not what you and I believe it to be. So he has this synodal process that he maps out here. This was, remember, 2015, back, back then already. He laid it all out. He explained it all right then and there. Why anybody should be surprised at this is a mystery to me. He was very candid about what his intentions were, what he was going to do to the church, and how he was going to basically destroy the church as she was and recreate his own church. But then he goes on to repeat it now. He, Francis does this often in his writings. He says it once, <clears throat> he goes back and says it again, and he says it again. And maybe he's just uh, learned, you know, that in order to get a message across, you say what you're going to say, then you say it, and then you say what you said. Because he does it practically every time. So he goes on to the next section, and he says, synodality as a constitutive element of the church. So this is something of the very constitution of the church. This is not something you can take or leave. This is what makes the church the church. Without it, the church can't be the church. The church has to be synodal, is what he's saying here. He says it offers us the most appropriate interpretive framework for understanding the hierarchical 
ministry itself. Now he's talking the very, the very essence of hierarchy in the church, the church that he's creating here. It's built upon synodality. In this church, he says, as in an inverted pyramid, the top is located beneath the base. So imagine that. You have the in pyramid, but it's inverted so that the top of the pyramid, where he is, is actually <clears throat> beneath the base. It's upside down, right? It's underwater, as it were. You have the base <clears throat> at the top, <clears throat> which is actually... Now, show me a building where you build a foundation on the top. <laughs> you know, show me any building. What will happen to that? What did our Lord say? You know? <laughs> will happen to a building like that? Um, <clears throat> this is exactly what Francis is describing for us, though. He says it right here in his uh, explanation of synodality, what he intends to do. The church he intends to build. In this church, as an inverted pyramid, the top is located beneath the base. And that idea of him being beneath the base <clears throat> kind of gives you an idea of where, what he's doing to the papacy. How he's completely perverting. He's not only inverting the papacy, he's perverting it. And uh, they're letting him do it. Unfortunately, the conservative followers, his conservative followers, who are so desperately trying to hold on to vestiges of the Catholic faith through all of this, this cyclone that they're living through, are, are actually trying to save the vestiges of the church, and they're trying to continue to save Francis, too. They're trying to save him. And what they're doing is they're allowing him to invert and pervert the papacy. They're allowing him to do that because they're constantly adjusting the concept of the papacy to fit Francis. And, you know, it gets to the point where, as with Father Alton, Altman, for example, and if, if John Henry Weston believe, agrees with him, and now Liz Yor, they may see we cannot, we cannot destroy the, the Catholic concept of the papacy in order to somehow continue regarding Francis as a true pontiff, <clears throat> except as the, he's the Pope of the Novus Ordo. I mean, we can all agree on that. Again, at the risk of sounding, uh, you know, repetitive here, because I'm just telling you what Francis himself says about this. In a synodal church, the synod of bishops is only the most evident manifestation of a dynamism of communion, which inspires all ecclesial decisions. The synod of bishops is only the most evident. There's much more, right? to a, what he calls the dynamism of communion. What does he mean by that? Well, again, he repeats this. And I think he repeats it because he wants to hammer this idea into the minds of the people who are reading this. He wants to, to continually go back to hammer these ideas through. He says the first level of the exercise of synodality is had in the particular churches. After mentioning the noble institution of the diocesan synod, in which priests and laity are called to cooperate with the bishop for the good of the whole ecclesial community. The Code of Canon Law, it's a new code, devotes ample space to what are usually called organs of communion in the local church, the Presbyteral Council, the College of Consultors, chapters of canons, and the Pastoral Council. It's like a, you know, like a, a parish council, laypeople. Only to the extent that these organizations keep connected to the base and start from the people and their daily problems 
can a synodal church begin to take shape? That statement is earth-shattering. I don't know if people really, in reading these things put out by a modernist, can really follow the understanding, because the Catholic understanding is so completely at variance with this. Now listen to what this says. Only to the extent that these local diocesan organizations keep connected with the, the base and start from the people and their daily problems can a synodal church begin to take shape. That's where the synodal church begins. This constitutive element, right, of the teaching authority of the church has to begin by keeping contact with the people, their lives, and their daily problems. That's where you have to go to find the origins of the faith. You see what he's saying here? This is astounding. That people would, would see this in 2015 and not realize, what is going on here? This is a complete, a complete sea change. This is, a, this is a complete rejection of the church as she has been for all these centuries. And it's calling for the, the birth of something new, modern, and monstrous, really. He says the second level is that of ecclesiastical provinces and ecclesiastical regions, particular councils. He says you have to go then from the local level as the faith is expressed by the people, their lives and their daily problems, has to go up to the next level. And he says the last level is that of the universal church. Here, the Synod of Bishops, representing the Catholic Episcopate, becomes an expression of Episcopal collegiality within an entirely synodal church. What is he saying? He's saying <clears throat> the College of Bishops comes together now, and they bring together all that they've learned of the faith from the people. They're going to bring this together, and then they're going to actually present it to Francis. He's the one whose responsibility is to develop the formulas, which are the new dogmas. He's developing the formulas which express the faith of the people that began with the synodal process at the very base of, and foundation of this whole process. It finally comes to Francis, filtered down through the bishops. And Francis is charged now, his whole role, with regard to faith and the Petrine ministry, as he insists on calling it, is to find a way to express what he's learning from the bishops and what they learned from the people. And he expresses the new doctrines of faith. And the, this is something what, which he says is continually in flux. It must continually change and adapt to the modern times because the people's experience from which the faith begins is constantly changing. People's experience in the modern world, their experience of God and Christ in the modern world is constantly changing. So that's what he says. This is where you have the entirely synodal church, he says. The commitment to build... Note the words, the commitment to build a synodal church. He's making no bones about it. He's building this church. A mission to which we are all called, each with the role entrusted to him by the Lord, has significant ecumenical implications. To that we might say, <laughs> no kidding. It certainly does, right? 
It's creating a church which is precisely that, ecumenical, open to all and no belief whatsoever. I am persuaded that in a synodal church, greater light can be shed on the exercise of the Petrine primacy. Here he talks about now the papacy, how in the synodal church, the understanding of the papacy is going to be different. He says, the Pope is not by himself above the church, but within it as one of the baptized, and within the college of bishops as a bishop among bishops, called at the same time as successor of Peter to lead the church of Rome, which presides in charity over all the churches. He goes on to explain, while reaffirming the urgent need to think about a conversion, he has this in quotes, a conversion of the papacy. He says, we have an urgent need to think about a conversion of the papacy. He's telling us. He's changing the notion of the very notion of the papacy. I willingly repeat the words of my predecessor, Pope John Paul II, quote, as Bishop of Rome, I am fully aware that Christ ardently desires the full and visible communion of all those communities in which by virtue of God's faithfulness, his spirit dwells. So by virtue of God's faithfulness, the whole, what we call the Holy Ghost, what they call the Spirit here, dwells in all of these churches, non-Catholic churches. Okay? I'm convinced that I have a particular responsibility in this regard, above all, in acknowledging the ecumenical aspirations of the majority of the Christian communities. Tom, again, you know, you, you read that statement and you have to kind of shake your head a little bit and go back and look at it again and say, okay, what does this mean? Realize what he's saying here. He says, as, as a vicar, as, as the, what he calls the Petrine, uh, exercising the Petrine ministry in the church today, and as a successor of Peter, he has a special responsibility to acknowledge the ecumenical aspirations of the majority of Christian communities. That is what his preoccupation is. That's his primary goal. That's his primary focus. He says it right here. He quotes John Paul II as saying that. That's his primary focus, the aspiration of the Christian communities. How does that apply to St. Peter as the rock who is there to confirm the faith of the brethren when his primary concern is the aspirations of the divided Christian communities and his responsibility to them? Where is his responsibility to Christ above all? Where is his responsibility to the Catholic Church above all? Why does he not have a particular responsibility there? You understand what I'm, I'm saying here? So he talks about the primacy of Peter here, but he, he is already actually distorting the very concept of the primacy of Peter. And what I find, again, rep reprehensible about, about this is, again, the falsification that comes up uh, when, you, when you turn back uh, the page a little bit, you find that he quotes one of the fathers of the church here by name, St. John Chrysostom. And he quotes him in order to convey the idea that St. John Chrysostom, all the way back about the year 400, in the 400s, uh, spoke about this idea of synodality in the church. And he's supposedly quoting from St. John Chrysostom's explanation of Psalm 149. You find that in the Patrologia Greca, number 55, 493. Now, I, I went looking for that, but I've taken whatever volumes I had of the Patrologia Greca. 
to the seminary in Roundtop, and I left them there. I don't have that there, but it can be accessed online. I haven't had a chance to do it yet. But I would be, I, I would, I would bet anybody a hundred dollars or more that that citation of Saint John uh, Chrysostom is entirely taken out of context. It cannot say what he attributes to Saint John Chrysostom because Saint John Chrysostom did not believe in Francis's synodal process. Now I know I've been talking for some time about what Francis outlined would be his goal and his whole purpose. The papacy, the papacy that he exercises of the new order is to create this synodal church, okay? And Liz, you're absolutely right in saying that this is creating a new religion here. Well, I don't know if she says it in so many words, but he's instituting a new church, he's building a new church, which in uh, over the what he hopes to be the ruins of the traditional Catholic church. But if I can have a few more minutes and a lot more patience of your time, I appreciate your uh, patiently listening to this. Um, but we have to turn to what St. Pius X said, the modernists were about to do, to tie it together with exactly Francis's plan here. Remember that the modernists, as St. Pius X explains in Pescendi, regard faith as really an experience. You have a faith experience. Each individual has that faith experience. And I picked this up in number 15 of the encyclical Pescendi. But this doctrine of experience is also under another aspect entirely contrary to Catholic truth. It is extended and applied to tradition as hitherto understood by the church and destroys it. St. Pius X says that the concept, the modernist concept of faith destroys the Catholic understanding of tradition. In other words, they take the word and they destroy the meaning of the word. And he ends that paragraph by saying, hence again, it is given to us to infer that all existing religions are equally true, for otherwise they would not live. Essentially, they would not exist. The fact that these religions continue to exist is proof that there is truth in them, because they have that vital power within them that comes from genuine experience of God. This is, by the way, fundamental to their ecumenical process, that there is truth in all the religions because actually they all represent a true experience of God. And in number 25, uh, Pope Pius X in Bishendi goes on to talk about the magisterium of the church. This is where we have to look in order to find the roots of the modernist concept of the church, which Francis intends to build. And just to take, again, sentences out of this. I can't read the whole thing because it would take too long and people would get lost. But to tie together what he's saying here, he says, this is their conception of the magisterium of the church. He says, the magisterium of the church concerns a kind of common mind, he said. There has to be a common mind. Notice Francis uses the word a consensus, consensus of the faithful. The modernist <clears throat> requires a kind of common mind, but also requires an authority which is sufficient to enable the common mind to impose on the community the formula which has been decided upon. So the authority must decide on the formula of the faith expressed by the common mind. Does that ring a bell? 
the faithful express the common mind and what the faith is. And Francis, the authority now, has to produce the formula and impose it upon them. Francis even says he he's the guarantor of obedience by producing the formula, expressing the mind, the, the faith of the common mind, the consensus of the people. He says these two elements, the common mind which draws up the formula and the authority which imposes it, arises according to the modernists, the notion of the ecclesiastical magisterium. So these are the things that are involved in the church magisterium. And as the magisterium springs in its last analysis from the individual consciences of the people and possesses its mandate of public utility for their benefit, it follows that the ecclesiastical magisterium must be subordinated to them. So the ecclesiastical magisterium must be subordinated to the individual consciences of the people because it is there to serve them. It's for their benefit. This, do you understand? You see the connection here? You see where we're going with this? But this was written in 1907. This was written more than 100 years before Francis's address to this um, 50th anniversary crowd here of the synodal, Synod of Bishops. He says, and should therefore the ecclesiastical magisterium must be subordinated to the individual consciences of the people, and therefore it should take democratic forms. He said that in 1907. He says, therefore, one has to be very careful, he says, because, therefore, ecclesiastical magisterium can abuse its power. And it can abuse the power given to it for public utility. It can condemn and prescribe a work without the knowledge of the author, without hearing his explanations, without discussion, we might say meaningful dialogue today. Assuredly, this savors of tyranny, to abuse ecclesiastical authority, to condemn teachings. And thus there must be a way found to save the full rights of the authority on the one hand and of the liberty on the other. In the meanwhile, the proper course for the Catholic, uh, get this, the proper force for the Catholic will be to proclaim publicly his profound respect for authority and continue to follow his own bent. In other words, do what he wants. That's the proper force for the Catholic, according to the modernists. Praise the authority, your love and your loyalty to the authority, and then do what you want. Does that sound familiar? What does that describe today? In any case, uh, these are the words of St. Pius X in 1907 as to what the modernists wanted to do to the Church. He said, first of all, they laid down the general principle that in a living religion, Everything is subject to change and must change. It must change, change to live, he said, according to the principle of evolution. To the laws of evolution, everything is subject. Dogma, church, worship, the books we revere as sacred, even faith itself, everything is subject to change. The penalty of disobedience is death because unless the faith, the church, worship, change, unless dogma changes, then it is not evolving. None of those are evolving. 
And evolution is the key to life here. So if they're not changing, they're dying. That's the modernist idea. And he says, they themselves teach us, as, teach us how this works out. And he goes on to explain how the faith must change, how dogma must change, how the church must change. He says, this is the progress of faith that is necessary for the church. He says, as it happened in the case of Christ, in him the divine something which faith admitted in him expanded in such a way that he was at last held to be God. The chief stimulus of evolution in the domain of worship consists in the need of adapting itself to the uses and customs of the peoples. Sound familiar? It's the whole point, isn't it? That's the Novus Ordo. Of harmonizing itself with existing forms of society. This whole theory of necessities and needs is at the root of the entire system of the modernists. In other words, the church itself must respond to and correspond to the needs of the people. What they need, the church must listen to that. That's the faith that must be given to them. In the indigenous peoples, this is what they need, and this is what the church must give to them. So he says that in the modernist idea of the church, there is a conflict of two forces. The one force towards progress, that comes from the people, and the other force towards conservation, and this comes from the authority. The conserving force, he says, is tradition, understood in the modernist sense, and the progressive force is the people. The people are the ones who are progressive. And he says it is this progressive force which brings pressure on the authority. And the authority must concede, must concede to the progressive force for the church to live. It must change and answer to the force of the people pushing it. It must correspond to their inner needs, he says. Because they are in most intimate contact with life, and that's where faith comes from. The, lady, the laity, he says, is the factor of progress in the church. So he says what is needed in the church, again, the modernist concept of church, is a species of compromise. That's what St. Pius X says in 1907. The modernists insist there must be a species of compromise going between the forces of confirmation and the forces of progress. To say that there is, he says, a compromise between authority and the individual consciences. That is where the truth comes from in that compromise. The changes and the advances take place in this compromise. The individual consciences of some of them act on the collective consciences, which brings pressure to bear on the depositories of authority until the latter consent to a compromise. And this pact being made, authority then sees to its maintenance and it becomes the new tradition that authority will then guard. The, the compromise becomes the new normal, in other words, and that becomes the new faith. And he says, <clears throat> this is how within the ranks of the church in order that they may gradually transform the collective consciousness. The modernists are at work in order to do this. They are at works within the ranks of the church. They are working within the ranks of the church to transform 
gradually the collective consciousness of the people. Transforming the collective consciousness of the people, therefore, will have the effect of changing their experience of the faith. They will then convey that transformed experience to the Synod of Bishops, who will then present this to Francis, who will then construct the statements or formulas necessary to canonize this new faith of the people's experience. This is exactly what Francis is proposing to do in 2015, and what he is intending to do now. He's got this in the very works. This is actually in the final stages right now, right? We're at the midpoint. October, and this began in 2021, right? It's supposed to conclude in October of 2023. We're at the midpoint of this very revolutionary process where Francis is on the verge of unveiling his new creation of the Synodal Church. And I think you've heard an interesting prophecy of all, of all <clears throat> places originating with uh, Garabandal. I think you were talking to me about that earlier, right? This is this is also the talk of the town right now among people. Mm-hmm. In fact, did Liz Yor even bring this up? She did in that same interview we uh, we referenced. She did mention this. Um, I don't know if there exists any kind of actual text of, of what the uh, the, the um, alleged apparition uh, said, but uh, this Liz Yor they they reference. Um, Apparently, uh, I believe it was a some some sort of nun who was personally acquainted with one of the alleged seers at Garabandal, and uh, she said this was the message that um, our, our lady allegedly told the seer that uh, there would be a great a great synod, and uh, after this synod, the antichrist would appear in the church, and uh, so they're attempting uh, to to tie this with what is happening with uh, with Francis here in this uh, I guess world. Senate that's that's uh, going to conclude all of this in October of 2023. So there's some speculation, I guess, based on these um, prophecies of Garbandal that uh, the Antichrist could appear at some point after this um, Senate concludes in 2023. So, well, I've heard uh, people talking more and more about this. You know, it's drawing a, quite a bit of attention, and I can see why. Okay. And I think it'd be a good idea if we uh, read into this a little bit, uh, read up on this, I should say, and maybe do a program next on this very idea. You know, what exactly does this say? What about this uh, Garabandal? I don't know enough to even speak about it right now. I think a number of the traditional Catholic people and would-be traditional Catholic people are reading up on it right now because they find this very interesting, to say the least. And they want to know more about it. So I think we ought to answer that um, questions they might have maybe in the next program. Sure. <clears throat> if we can uh, sufficiently investigate it. And maybe in the process of saying this, I can ask the, the listeners to send us whatever information, reliable information they have about Garabondel. Sure. Certainly like to take a look at it and see. Um, so as I understand correctly, uh, you, you heard this, you listened to this yourself, that... Liz Yor, this uh, lady commentator here, and by the way, I guess we should also mention that people can go to the LifeSite News website mm-hmm. and look up this interview of Father Altman mm-hmm. and Liz Yor by John Henry, Henry Weston, Weston too, yes. and see it for yourselves here. And tell me if it isn't kind of startling to you <laughs> what Father Altman says and how he says it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd like to get some response about this. 
but the idea that if this is accurate, I mean, if, if it is true, it, it, there are a lot of ifs involved here, I, I recognize that, that after a great synod, okay, that this would pave the way, open the door for the Antichrist to appear in the world. The achievement says to appear in the church. To appear in the church. Interesting. That's, that's <laughs> Interesting. <clears throat> well, see, I'm putting things together, and um, uh, curiously enough, from different, from different aspects, I'm kind of putting it together. <clears throat> For example, you take the book uh, The Lord of the World by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, which actually was published in 1907, the same year as, as uh, Pescendi. And I've mentioned this on programs before. Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson convert uh, to the Catholic faith, very, very uh, devoted priest, right? Um, wrote the Lord of the World about the coming of the Antichrist. In the book, there are some things that sound almost prophetic, published in 1907. And if one was to take, uh, let's say, the, the tack of trying to date the inventions that he speaks of in the book, uh, one might come to well, about the year 2025, for when the Antichrist actually appears. He has him appearing in England, named by the name of J Julian Felsenberg, right? uh, <clears throat> with the and, and introdu introducing, uh, uh, you know, self-suicide and all the other things that we see happening today. And um, you also, you know, listen to the voice of a leader of the Theosophists. You know that that uh, Elena Petrovna uh, Blavatsky, the Russian emigre, the occultist, right? Uh, leaving Russia, going to England, and starting the Theosophical Societies. Um, she herself passed that occult society. By the way, Monsignor Benson thought that the Antichrist would probably emerge from the Theosophical Society. He thought it was so satan satanic. And uh, uh, Madame Blavatsky, as she's known, Passed the the reins of the Theosophical Society uh, to Alice, not, not not to Alice and Bailey, but to Annie Besant. It's interesting reading the history of this because these women did not get along with each other. But anyway, Annie Besant took over for uh, Blavatsky, and then uh, after Annie Besant, there came an occultist known as Alice Ann Bailey. And somebody back in the 1930s, as I recall, was asking Alice Ann Bailey when the world teacher would come, Lord Maitreya, right, the Theosophist, the one who would come to the world and teach mankind that it is God. And she said, well, if all goes as expected, and at the rate we're going now, we could probably expect Lord Maitreya to make his, uh, to unveil himself or reveal himself to the world about the year 2025. So we see a kind of strange convergence here. We also see a strange convergence in the various religions that believe in a quasi-messiah, like the Mahdi, the Mahdi of the, uh, some of the Muslims, looking, and the Buddhists too, uh, looking at the coming of a great Buddhist leader. And they all converge about this time. And uh, I would say this is no accident. If we, if we see a, uh, a very uh, satanic influence preparing mankind to receive this horrendous figure of the Antichrist as the great hailed savior of the world, right? Uh, it all seems to come together. So um, anyway, I just find it interesting.
By the way, what do you think the message should be from all of this? If people, if people actually see the point and see and actually fear that it might be coming about before our very eyes, what do you think should be the reaction of that, of a Catholic man like yourself? Well, the same thing that Catholic men always do is pray and uh, just prepare for it. And uh, how? In other well, words, I agree with you totally, right? And how would you, as a Catholic gentleman, which you are, how would you, what would you exhort Catholic men to do? I'm turning the tables on you now, after having spoken so long. Now I'm actually putting it in your hands. Uh, yeah. But I do this with a certain confidence, because I, I see you as a Catholic gentleman. So I'm not just putting you on the spot. I think you have something good to say here. I know you do. <laughs> well, I would, of course, uh, say begin with prayer more than anything else. Before you do anything else, pray and uh, make sure that you're living your life in the state of sanctifying grace every single day. But um, I would say one, one big practical thing is to detach yourself from the world. Um, I mentioned this a couple of programs ago with the, um, with the prayer of consecration to the Sacred Heart the enthronement ceremony where you say that you, you profess that, that you're going to banish from your midst the spirit of the world, which our Lord abhors so much. And I think that's um, a big thing that, that um, everyone could work on is just detaching themselves from the world, make sure they don't have um, any kind of attachment to the world and that they are just living their Catholic faith and that is their primary focus every single day. Everything else they do uh, revolves around that. Everything is geared towards that, improving their their faith, improving their um, their spiritual life, and growing in the spiritual life, and uh, not being as as trying not to be as concerned with uh, with your worldly worldly cares. Um, so I think that's that's a big a big uh, step that everyone could take, and I think practically practically speaking, I think um, that would mean things like uh, like. Paying off debts, I think, would be would be a big thing on there. I know that's especially here in the United States. That's a um, a big a, a big problem. We actually wanted to get into the financial question a little bit with the uh, so-called Biden's bucks that we're gonna that are yeah. gonna come about and the digital currencies. But um, yeah, we'll address that in some future time. Yeah. But everything you're saying, you're saying as a traditional Catholic, that's your, you're saying from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But what do you say to people? who are confused and are, let's say, in the, in the, in the new order right now. Um, you're speaking from the standpoint of a traditional Catholic man, what a, one who is already practicing the traditional faith should do. But how would you advise somebody who still has the faith, but they're confused now and they're going to the Novus Ordo, but they see a contradiction between what they believe and what they're practicing in the Novus Ordo? Well, they have to realize that, of course, our Lord doesn't want you to live a contradiction. Um, he wants you to to learn and know your faith and uh, and then practice that faith and he would never require you to live any kind of contradiction. God cannot contradict himself. So um, if you really have the faith, if you really love the faith, then study the faith and learn the faith and then make sure that you're practicing that faith. And anyone who is honest with himself and honestly studies the faith and uh, has a love for truth and a real love for our Lord, if he really studies his faith and studies the traditions of the Catholic Church, he will find there's no no way that he can practice that faith within the Novus Ordo Church. There's there's no way. It's it's they're absolutely incompatible. And um, of course the only conclusion that he could possibly come to would be that um, you know, he has to practice his traditional Catholic faith within the traditional Catholic Church. He cannot practice a traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo Church. Um, I think the the 
problem is why it's so hard for many people to see this is is mm -hmm. like um i think father father skierke brought this point up that so many people they um he, he used the phrase they they've bought into it or they have some kind of attachment mm -hmm. maybe it's a, a relative or, or something that um you know these are very hard decisions that you have to make maybe you have to maybe you have to um you know break friendships or they or, grow up at it and they're comfortable there yeah you you might have to um you might have to you know give up your your job and and move across the state across the country um even to to be in a position where you can practice your traditional catholic faith and i know that's an enormous sacrifice but look at what's at stake here <laughs> it's mm -hmm. your eternal salvation um you know and if these times really are coming upon us and we have the end times and, and the antichrist I, I don't see how it's any any traditional Catholic could could be comfortable living away from away from the sacraments, away from uh, from a traditional Catholic priest who can provide the mass and the sacraments for them. Um, I, I don't see any way. And again, you know, we hear from from viewers all the time all over the world um, who have in fact made these sacrifices. We we have them here with us who have um, you know they they've they've damaged friendships and uh, you know even strained family relations, they've given up jobs and careers, <laughs> they've sold their homes and picked everything up and moved all the way across the country. And that is, um, that, that might be the sacrifice that's required. But again, I think if you just look at what's at stake here and you think, well, these are really the end times. And, uh, you know, I want to be, you know, the gospel talks about the, the, um, the eagles being gathered together. Well, I think now's the time to make that happen. It's just to, to flee to the flee to the mountains. And I always thought, well, talking about the mountains, I think the most prominent mountain is Mount Calvary and the Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So, Mount I think Calvary, exactly. every every um, every traditional Catholic, of course, should be they should obviously realize that they need to be um, very close to the Mass and the sacraments. But anyone who is you know not a traditional Catholic who might have the traditional Catholic faith but trying to practice practice that and then it was sort of even trying to practice that on on their own you know the, the so-called home aloneers um i don't think they're they're going to have have much success without being sustained and uh fortified by the, the mass and, and sacraments so i think that is um an enormous well all, all i can yeah. say is amen <laughs> and uh, i say that it's very very well said and by the way one of the most important things uh, about this you say at the end of every program now i'll let you say that <laughs> because everybody will know exactly what I mean. Yeah. And your sign off is that it is so important. Right. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Yeah. To Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.